how are you doing today? Great. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Friendship Church, and I have an opportunity to spend some time with you this morning. I want to say thank you before we do anything to those of you who gathered over the last couple of weeks and painted the campus. It looks fantastic, so thankful for the work that you put in. I'm really excited about our Christmas sermon series that Kenny kicked off last week called Light to You. Normally, when we spend time looking at Jesus coming during the Christmas season, we go to typical Christmas passages found in the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Matthew. And what do we find in those passages? We, we find that Matthew and Luke deal with the details, or if you will, the trees of Jesus' birth. What kind of details do those Gospels cover? Things like angelic visits to Mary and Joseph, or a trip to Bethlehem, or there being no room in the inn, or Jesus' first crib being a manger. This year, as we celebrate the Christmas season, we're spending some time looking at Jesus coming through the eyes of the Gospel of John. And how does John give us a picture of Jesus coming? He zooms up to 30,000 feet, and instead of focusing on the trees, he focuses on the whole forest. He focuses not on the details of Jesus' birth and Jesus' coming, but instead on the identity of who Jesus is and the purpose for which he came. We saw that last week in the first five verses of John chapter 1. And so I want to invite you to turn to John 1, and we're going to look at those first five verses. And you say, wait a minute. Didn't we read those five verses last week? And I say, yes, yes, we did. And we're going to look at those first five verses again. Last week, we focused on the first three verses. And this week, our attention will go to verses 4 and 5. John 1, 1 through 5 says this, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Last week we focused on the first three verses here in John 1, and what we saw is that Jesus is the Word. Now, why does John, a man who was perhaps closer to Jesus than anyone else when he walked upon the earth, introduce Jesus in his gospel as the Word? There are probably a number of different reasons, but one of the big ones is this, because Jesus is the ultimate communication between God and humanity. What are our words all about? They're about communication. We use our words to communicate in our relationships, don't we? This morning, before I left to come here, I wanted to communicate to my son that his mother and I were leaving before he was leaving to go to church, and before he went to church, he needed to take the dog outside, put the dog in the kennel, come home after the first service, and make sure that the dog would then go outside again, and that mom and I would eventually be home and we'd all eat lunch together. Can you imagine if I had had to try to communicate all of that to him without words? You think communication is hard in our families now. Imagine it if there were no words. 
I can see some of you are like, I'd be up for that. When can we start the no words policy in our family? Right? But, but words aren't just about how we communicate in relationship. They're about how we communicate about ourselves, right? When Pastor Kenny came here, we asked him to tell us, tell us about yourself, Kenny. In several different settings, he was asked to tell us about him. How did he do that? He did it with words. Can you imagine what that process would have been like if there were no words allowed? I'm picturing the world's longest and most painful game of charades. <laughs> Kenny, tell us about yourself. Okay, uh, 4,234 words. First word is, ah! Right? W- words are how we communicate with each other and how we communicate about ourselves. And that is what Jesus is. He's the ultimate and perfect communication from God to humanity. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to, he, he gave word to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us or given us word by his Son. Jesus is the, the ultimate, the perfect communication, far surpassing any previous communication from God. He is that perfect word. And what is it that we saw last week in the first three verses about the word? As we looked through those first three verses, we saw four big things about the word. First of all, we saw that Jesus is before creation. In the beginning was the word. That start to John chapter 1 is meant to call our attention to the very first words of the Bible, isn't it? In the beginning, God created is how Genesis 1-1 started. And John 1-1 starts with those same words, in the beginning, in order to call our attention to the fact that before there was anything made, before there was any creation whatsoever, the word Jesus was. He was before all creation, which makes total and complete sense because of the second point that we saw in our passage last week, and that is Jesus, the word, is God. You saw Kenny and I talking about the 90-day reading plan that we want to invite anyone and everyone to participate in between January 1st and Easter. There's about 90 days in between there. And we're going to read the Gospels in those 90 days. That's about a chapter per day. And as we do that, we're going to see Jesus revealed on every page in that reading. And what is it that Jesus shows us? He perfectly shows us God. Because he is God in the flesh. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1 say he is the perfect image of the invisible God. He shows us God because he is God in the flesh. But we also saw last week, not only is Jesus God, but we're told that he was with God. And we asked, wait a minute, how is that possible? How can he be God and also be with God? And of course, the answer to that is the Trinity which is so key to so much of what we believe. We recognize that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet totally united as one God, so that Jesus is able to be God and be with God. And of course, as a part of the Trinity, we recognize that Jesus made all things. What did verse 3 say? Everything that's been made has been made by Jesus, and there's nothing that exists that he didn't make. Right? He made all things. And the Greek word there for made 
is a word that means to bring something into being out of nothing. There's another word he could have used that would have meant to make something out of materials that already exist. But that's not the word he chose. Instead, he made everything that exists out of nothing. Do you understand that distinction? Uh, Bruce and Bill made our, our set design back here, the barn doors. And they did a great job on it. I'm really thankful for those guys and the craftsmanship that they have. But let's be clear. Bruce and Bill made those barn doors out of existing materials. They did not bring the wood into being. They're good. They're not that good. Right? Only God is that good. And that's precisely what John is saying about him. He, he is God who made all things out of nothing. And so before we go on to our two verses for today, verses 4 and 5, I want you to just sit and dwell on that for a second. That the man who sat on the beach by the Sea of Galilee, eating fish with his disciples, is the same one who made the billions of stars in our galaxy and the billions of galaxies that surround our galaxy. He is the same one who made the microbiological detail and function that allows all of life to operate. Jesus is the living word, the maker of all that exists. And now in verses 4 and 5, John applies two other words to him. He says not only is he the word, but he is also life and he is light. Right? He is life and he is light. Verse 4 says that life is in him. All, all life is bound up in Jesus. In him was life and I need that life. Anyone else? Right? I, I need the life that is in him. Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, says that because of my transgressions and sins, I'm what? I'm dead, that's right. I am dead in my sins and transgressions. I have no spiritual life apart from Jesus. All life is in him. Jesus teaches this lesson to a man in John chapter 3 who comes to him secretly at night. What's his name? Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is one of the 71 members of the Sanhedrin. He probably doesn't want anyone to know that he is going to this man who has no formal religious education in order to ask questions and get information. And so he sneaks to the house where Jesus is late in the evening. Perhaps his, his hood is pulled down around his face so no one can see him. He, he is known as the teacher of Israel, and yet he is going to get information from someone else. And as he sits with Jesus, if you just flip in your Bible one page over to John chapter 3, we see him ask this question in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus, what's going on? You must be from God. Look at what you're doing. Nicodemus has heard tale of, or perhaps even seen, Jesus give sight to the blind. Jesus heal the lame, cast out demons, and he says, there, there has to be an involvement of God in what you are doing. Spill the beans, Jesus. What is going on? 
Jesus responds in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this statement is troubling for Nicodemus because Nicodemus is a hyper-literalist. And he hears Jesus say this and he goes, how is that even possible that an adult person is supposed to go back inside their mother's womb? Are you kidding me? And does the mom get a vote in all of this? Because this sounds awful. And so Jesus explains to him, I'm not talking about a second physical birth. But just as you were born physically, so during your life, you need to be born spiritually. That's what it means to be born again. Because we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And the only way that we can have life is through Jesus. Life is in Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. All life is bound up in him. One of the most challenging things, I think, for my heart to watch over the last 30 years has been how this message has left so many churches, especially very, very popular churches. And the message that we are dead in our sins and trespasses and in need of Jesus if we're going to have any spiritual life has been replaced by the use of the Bible as a big book of virtues. We're going to do four weeks on how to be more honest. And we're going to do a four weeks. All the sermon series have to be four weeks for some reason in these churches. We're going to do four weeks on how to have a more blessed life financially. And the Bible is used as a big book of virtues and a big book of blessings. And what has been lost in these churches is the fundamental gospel message. The gospel is tagged on at the very end so that you can have a Jesus boost in order to get a little morality or a Jesus boost in order to live a more blessed life. Usually at the end of some sermon about some virtue or how to be more blessed, someone comes on and says, if you want to be more blessed, if, if you want to live a more moral life, Pray this prayer and Jesus will come into your life and he'll be that shot of vitamin Jesus that you need in order to live the life you've always dreamed of. And within this framework, it ignores the fundamental gospel message that Jesus is king and Lord. He doesn't come to give us a boost to live the life we've wanted, but instead comes so that we'll fall on our knees before him and submit ourselves fully to him. That salvation isn't about getting a little bit of vitamin Jesus to help you live the life you've always dreamed of. But salvation exists because we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Because as Romans chapter 1 and 2 talks about, the wrath of God rests upon us because of the sin in our life. And there is eternal punishment that is ours if we are not freed from those sins. And Jesus came in order to drink the cup of God's wrath. On the cross, he came to pay the price so that that punishment would not be upon us, so that we might be saved and have new life in him. That gospel message has been so lost in so many churches. But Jesus wants us to be clear no, no, real life is bound up in me. Real life is always about me. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. But Jesus gives us life 
life eternal with him. And because he is life, he is also light to all mankind. That's what verse 4 says. He, he is life, so he is light to all mankind. And what does it mean to us that Jesus is light? John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus declares what? I am the light of the world. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, speaking of his coming, we are told that a people who live in darkness will see a great what? Light. Right? Jesus is that light. And what do we know about Jesus when he identifies himself as the light of the world? That he is the light of all mankind. Let me give you three things this morning. There are more than these three things, but these will be the three things that we focus on this morning. First of all, Jesus reveals what is true. In darkness, misconception and misperception are allowed to grow. But when the light is turned on, things are seen for what they really are. The truth is revealed. A few weeks ago, I was at the Prior Lake campus at 10.15 at night. I'd had a meeting that night, and everybody had left around 9 o'clock, and I had a few more things I wanted to go and get done in my office. So I went into my office, and unbeknownst to me, on their way out, everybody turned all of the lights off in the building. And so about 10.15, I left my office in order to go and use the restroom, and it is dark in there as I am feeling my way towards the restroom. And you guys... All of a sudden, I started to freak out a little bit because I thought I saw people. I, I think I see people. Well, maybe people. Maybe it's monsters. I don't know. Over there in the corner, I, I think I feel people around. I started to freak out a little bit. And so what did I do? I went over to the wall and I flipped on the light. And instantly, I started to feel better because I looked around and I realized, oh, it's just me. In the light, I could see what was true, what was real. And, and I don't mind telling you, I just went from one light switch to the next, flipping on the lights, until every light was on in the entire building. I'm sure the neighbors were all like, why, why are they having a party at 1030 over at the Prior Lake campus? What's going on? Right? Light reveals that truth. In the darkness, misconception and misperception, misperception grow. Jesus says, I, I am the way, I am the what? The truth. How does Jesus as light reveal truth? Well, first of all, he reveals all truth about who God is. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, tell us that he is the perfect image of the invisible God. He reveals to us everything about who God is. And so he is the great revealer of truth about God and his character. But he also reveals how we are supposed to live life and how we can be saved. He is the light that reveals how life is to be lived and how we can be saved. What does Psalm 119, 105 say? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I, I reveal through my word how you are to live. 2 Timothy 3.15 says that it is the word of God that makes us wise for salvation. It is through Jesus and his living word that we learn how we are to live and how we can be saved. He is the light that reveals that truth to us. But I would add to this, that Jesus is also the light 
that reveals what's really going on in my life. When I sit with Jesus and the Holy Spirit whom he has sent, he reveals what's really going on in my heart. Have you had that experience? A few years ago, uh, my son was going through a time where he was challenging to the rest of our family. Any parents ever had a kid? No, don't raise your hand. Uh, It was right about the time that I started at Friendship Church. His sister went away to college, and in the midst of a whole lot of change, his attitude was daily challenging for us to be around. And on one particular day, he had done something that was the straw that broke the camel's back in my mind. Now, this this may shock you, but of the two Clausen parents, the one who is a preacher was always less likely to give a sermon to the kids. And maybe that won't shock you. But on this particular instance, in this particular situation, I was locked and loaded. When he got home for practice, I was going to let him have it with both barrels. And it was going to be reasoned, and it was going to be passionate, and it was going to be loud. I was so ready. And when he came home, I let him have it. And do you know what his reaction was? He tore his clothes in repentance. He dropped to his knees and he began to weep over his sin. Wait, why are you laughing? No, clearly that is not what happened. No, he began to yell back. And we went back and forth and back and forth after each other until he finally walked out the door and left. And he went on a walk for what was almost two hours by himself. We were living in downtown Minneapolis at the time, and so we just went out and started to wander around downtown Minneapolis. And my wife asked me, where's our son? I said, I don't know. She's like, that's bad parenting. You should know where he is. I'm like, he'll come back, maybe. Well, after almost a couple of hours, he did come back. And he said, can we talk? I said, sure. And so we sat down at the kitchen table. And he said, so I've been walking. And during that time, I didn't know what to do, so I started praying. And as we sat there together, he apologized for what he had done that particular day. And he apologized for his attitude and the way that his attitude had been for those few months And he asked me to pray for him then and in an ongoing way for some of the battles that he was facing. And he asked me to hold him accountable for some of what was going on in his life. And we sat and we talked and we prayed together. And then we went and we did something fun together. And in the midst of all of that, I fully recognize that what my perfectly planned, passionate, loud lecture could not accomplish, Jesus absolutely had as Isaiah walked around with just Jesus for a couple of hours. I can't tell you how many times that has been true in my parenting, that what my perfectly planned lectures have failed to accomplish, Jesus has accomplished when I have left my kids with some quiet, just them and the Lord. And how many times have I found that to be true in my own life? That when there are times of quiet and silence, that Jesus and his Holy Spirit 
go to work in my life in order to reveal what's really going on in my heart. To reveal my genuine motives as I'm walking through life and what I need to do in order to be fully transformed. Right? Jesus is the light. He reveals to us who God is, how we're to live life, how we can be saved, and what's going on inside of us. But the second way that Jesus acts in light uh, in our life, and we see it throughout the Gospel of John, is that like light, Jesus is spectacular. Like light, Jesus is majestic. You ever gone to shovel your driveway after a fresh snow and you open that garage door and all of the sunshine hits off of that snow into your eyes and you go, whoa, or you're out driving after a fresh snow and your eyes are mostly closed because of how unbelievably bright it is. No, I'm not the only one who drives with my eyes mostly closed. You do that too, right? Because of how unbelievably bright it is out there. Light light is brilliant. It's beautiful. It's majestic. Those times where you get a glimpse of the sun's rays coming down through the clouds or you see the prism of light laid out on a natural body of water. It's spectacular. It's majestic. And throughout the scripture, God's glory and majesty is often seen as light. That's why in Isaiah chapter 6, there are seraphim flying around the throne with two wings that cover their faces. Because of how majestic and glorious the throne of God is. That's why when Jesus appears before the Apostle Paul, Saul at that time, he appears as blinding light, literally blinding light in that situation. And occasionally as Jesus was walking upon the earth, his disciples that were with him would get this little glimpse of his glory and his majesty and would react appropriately in those situations. I'm thinking of Peter in Luke chapter 5, when he's out in a boat with Jesus, and they catch this great big mess of fish. And when Peter gets a little glimpse of the true identity of Jesus, how does he respond? He falls down on his face and he says, Get away from me, because I am unholy. Because he's overwhelmed at the majesty and the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. When Jesus calms the waters, how, does who, how do his disciples react when he calms the wind and the waves? We're told they fall on their faces in fear before him because of how majestic and how spectacular Jesus is. God has been overwhelming my heart the last few weeks as we enter into the Christmas season with the majesty and power and glory of Jesus. And it really started with this passage in John chapter 1 when I recognized, who's writing this? John chapter 1 is being written by a man who was perhaps closer to Jesus than anyone else on the earth. Refers to himself over and over again as what? The disciple Jesus loved. He's the one who is at the right hand of Jesus at the Last Supper. He's the one who at the cross Jesus gives his mother to. He was perhaps closer to Jesus than anyone else. And in John chapter 1, when he wants to introduce people to Jesus, how does he do it? Hey, I want you guys to all to meet my buddy. I want you all to meet my friend. No, he says, I want to introduce you to the divine word who made all things that exist. And then in Revelation chapter 1, when the same apostle 
meets Jesus after decades of not seeing him. In Revelation chapter 1, he describes what he sees in verses 12 through 16 with all of these glorious metaphors about what the risen Jesus is like. And then in verses 17 and 18, he says what he did when he first saw Jesus. This is a man who spent three years with him on the earth, who who was closer to Jesus than anyone else. He says, when I saw Jesus face to face, here's what I did. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. John sees a man that he spent three years with, that he was closer to than anyone else on the earth. And what is his reaction? He falls on his face as though dead before the glorious presence of the risen Jesus. We have here an answer to that question that is asked by Mercy Me in that song, I Can Only Imagine. What will I do when I see Jesus face to face? What does John do? Does he say, yo, bruh, it's been forever? No. Does he even run up and throw his arms around Jesus because he missed him so much? No, we are told he falls on his face as though dead because he's afraid because of how majestic and spectacular Jesus is. Uh, There are times when we try to make Christmas soft and cuddly and comfortable. The images are about adorable farm animals and rosy-cheeked shepherds. But John wants us to understand that Christmas is all about someone so majestic and so spectacular coming to earth that when he sees him in his risen form, he can't do anything but fall down on his face before him. Right? We worship the spectacular and majestic Jesus. Jesus, we, we worship you as light, majestic and spectacular. The final thing I want us to see about what it means that Jesus is light comes from verse 5, and it is this. Jesus overcomes the darkness. What did verse 5 say? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When you walk into a dark room and you turn on the lights, who wins, darkness or light? Right? Light drives out the darkness in that situation every time. Light wins over darkness, and the darkness does not overcome Jesus. Now you guys, aren't there times where it feels like the darkness is winning? Anyone? Aren't there times it feels like the darkness is winning in the world around us? When you read that one in four girls in America will be sexually abused within their homes while they're growing up, doesn't it feel like darkness is winning? When you read an article about a dad and his son in Pennsylvania who want to marry each other because they have bought into the world's values that, one, you can't tell me who to love, and two, you can't tell me what to do in my own home, doesn't it feel like darkness is winning? When we watch our politicians interact with each other, doesn't it feel like darkness is winning? 
When we recognize that 900,000 unborn babies have been killed this year, doesn't it feel like darkness is winning? When we see people arguing and fighting simply because they have different shades of skin, doesn't it feel like darkness is winning? There, There are plenty of times that it feels like darkness is winning in our world. How about in your life? Does it ever feel like darkness is winning in here? When you tell a lie to someone and you realize, hmm, I've known lying is wrong since I was three, and yet here I am, what am I doing? When you get sucked back into lustful images, You don't want to be in there, and yet there you are looking at images that you know you shouldn't be looking at. When we get sucked into coveting what other people have or what the world tells us we need. When somebody says something about their prayer life, and you look back over the course of the day, and you can't remember a single time that you've actually prayed over the course of that day. In those situations, doesn't it feel like the darkness might even be winning a little bit in here? It is possible that in your life, you feel like the darkness is winning out there, maybe even in here. But if you are a child of God, I want to encourage you to claim this promise that is made to us in John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and friends, the darkness will not overcome it. Ultimately, light overcomes the darkness. That's true in our world. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are told that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, that he has defeated sin and he has defeated death. And although they rear their head in the midst of the messiness and the brokenness of this world, ultimately, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 4 says that he has an inheritance for us. An inheritance that is kept in heaven, that'll never be defiled, that'll never fade. And so we recognize God has an amazing inheritance for his children that will be totally light. There will be no darkness whatsoever, no sin, no evil. Instead, only love, righteousness, goodness, and light. And Jesus has promised the darkness will not win in here. If you are God's child. Make no mistake about it. There is an intense battle going on in here. Galatians chapter 5 says. It's a war between the spirit and the flesh. And and, and as a child of God. I am growing in interacting with the spirit. And yet there are still way too many times. In which the flesh rears its head. Anyone else? The the good I want to do, I don't seem to be able to do. And the bad that I don't want to do, I seem to do it all the time. And the flesh rears its head and it rears its head. And there is this intense battle. And yet Jesus has promised that ultimately one day light will overcome darkness altogether and there will be nothing but good inside of me. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says that because we will see him face to face, we will be made totally and completely like him. And so there is this promise of Jesus. Out there, in here, darkness will not win. Ultimately, the light will overcome the darkness. It may be that in your life right now, you feel like you are surrounded by darkness. 
surrounded by darkness out there, maybe dealing with darkness in here. Let me remind you where your hope comes from. Jesus is the light of the world. And he has overcome the darkness and he will ultimately overcome it in us and in our world. I want to invite us to praise the light right now. I'm going to pray for us and the worship team is going to come out. And we are going to sing song of celebration about what Jesus has done in defeating death, in defeating darkness. And I want to invite you to stand with me, if you would, and let's pray, t- pray together, give God thanks, and then spend time worshiping him, the great light. Father, we are thankful for what you have done sending your Son. And Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the light of the world, the one who reveals all truth, uh, the one who is spectacular and majestic. And the one who drives out the darkness in our lives and in this world. Lord, we look forward to that day when there will be no more darkness in our existence. Instead of focusing on the world, we focus on the things that are above. Call our attention to the future that you have for us and the hope that is in it. In Jesus' name, amen.